Hello and welcome to From Fear to Fire, secrets to overcome fear, embrace your gifts, and achieve success. This is the place where real people share real challenges, where you can find a common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. I am Heather Hansen O'Neill. I am your host, and I'm thrilled to be here with you and bring you another outstanding guest. But first, we do our quote. Vision is the art of seeing what is invisible to others, and that is by Jonathan Swift. Today, our guest is Todd Churches. He is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based consulting firm specializing in leadership development, management training, public speaking, and executive coaching. He's also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership in the Human Capital Management Master's Program, that's a mouthful, at the NYU School of Professional Studies. Um, as well as a lecturer on leadership and various graduate programs at Columbia University. He's done a ton of things. He had a great TEDx talk last year um, called The Power of Visual Thinking. And he is, excitingly, the brand new author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. And so, you know, I could go on and on. He has amazing credentials, but I think I'd prefer to have him go through some of that. So welcome, Todd. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much, Heather. I love that opening quote. I wish I knew that before. I would have included it in my book. (laughs) I've got lots of those vision ones. I am all on board with what you do with the vision. It's fantastic. Love it. But, you know, I I have, you know, I have meant to ask you this question for a very long time, probably as long as I know you, but I'm dying to know about your company name, Big Blue Gumball. Can you first of all share a little bit about what you do with the company and then how you came up with that name? Sure, my company, Big Blue Gumball, actually my brother and I came up with it years ago during the early days of the dot-com era. We came up with an idea for a startup and Big Blue Gumball is a metaphor that represents the world. So to us, the world is like a Big Blue Gumball. It's colorful, it's hard on the outside sometimes, but soft and chewy on the inside, it's sweet. Um, you can also crack your teeth open on it if it's so. There's a lot of different analogies we use, but um, and then we, we never got funding for our startup. Um, but years later, when we formed our own company, we brought Big Blue Gumball back again, and uh, that's our company name. So our, our motto is: We make training entertaining. We do management, leadership, and presentation skills, consulting, training, and coaching. Um, and Big Blue Gumball is just our brand. It's fun. It's colorful, and it represents uh, who we are, what we do, and and how we do it. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it makes so much more sense now yeah. <laughs> that I have the visual in my head to go right. with it. See, yes. this is this is all going to tie back. I know it. So you have a, uh, the part that I didn't mention in your bio, you know, you have an interesting and kind of unconventional career background. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about the background, in particular because of the name of my show, From Fear mm-hmm. to Fire. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those you know, leadership management issues with being laid off and awful bosses and all of that stuff, if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my graduate course at NYU, one of the things I do, I actually save it for the very final session, which just happened to be last week, where I tell my students my career story. So I sprinkle stories throughout the semester, and then I pull back the curtain and reveal the whole story. And my students are always, like, mesmerized by the fact that, um, you know, what I've gone through. Because a lot of times in the HR field, we talk about having a career path as if it's some li- linear stroll in the park that's laid out <laughs> for us. 
but it's anything but that. And I say it's less a path and more of a roller coaster with ups and downs and twists and turns and exhilarating highs and terrifying lows, right? Um, so basically, my career background, I started out, I went to school at State University of New York at Albany, got my, I was an English literature major as an undergrad, so I would focus on Shakespeare and poetry. So a lot of times people think, oh, you must have been a business major, and I was anything but a business major or a technology major. I was all about reading, and I was an extreme introvert, extreme bookworm. I talk loud and fast because I'm from New York, but I'm still a back of the room, behind the curtains kind of guy by nature. So it took many years before I got to doing what I'm doing today, which is teaching and public speaking and all that kind of stuff. So um, so basically, um, I went to Albany State. I, I got my bachelor's in English literature. I got my master's in communication. I didn't want to leave school, so I just kept going. So actually, it was a good decision to make because it's a lot easier to keep going when you're in school than to go back to school. So um, so I, I kept going. I got my master's in communication. But my dream was to always, and, and, what, and during the summer, in between my bachelor's and my master's, I got an internship at NBC News in New York at 30 Rockefeller uh, Plaza. So that was like, my dream was always to work in television in some capacity, even from a little kid, because I was a TV junkie. In fact, I was just telling you how I used to sneak out of bed to watch Johnny Carson after my parents went to sleep when I was like 10. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So as a TV addict, and NBC at the time, it was the network of Cheers and Family Ties and and, and all, all the hit shows. So, um, so actually, interned at NBC News, I, I almost got, I came in second for the internship for David Letterman, which would have been, I was so crushed, talk about defeats and getting your hopes up. I didn't meet with him, but I met with his staff and I was one of the finalists and I didn't get it. So I ended up in the NBC News archives, which was not bad. Again, first, you know, summer internship for a college student, but that Letterman internship, who knows, you know, we all have successes and, and failures. And that was one where who knows what would have happened if I had gotten that. Right. We just never know. Right. So I interned in the NBC News archives and just being at 30 Rock, um, being around people in the halls and, and celebrities, Howard Stern and Chuck Scarborough and, and getting in the elevator. And Vanessa Williams was in the elevator and um, just all of those you know, Hollywood types of experiences in New York. Um, so I realized that after I graduated, because I couldn't get any jobs in New York and TV, I did work at Ogilvy Mather Advertising for a year doing media buying. And it was close because it was TV related, but that was a job all about numbers, ratings, shares, dollars, and it wasn't creative. So I actually, as an introvert, took one of the biggest risks I ever took and packed my bags and moved out to Hollywood. And um, I'll leave it there for right now. So that's where the, that side of the, the story ends. And then after 10 years in L.A. working for, I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees, which mm -hmm. us baby boomers know. My millennial students have no idea who that is. And then I worked for Aaron Spelling um, for a while during Dynasty, just putting scripts together. And then I got a job in casting administration at Columbia Pictures. I was laid off from there because the writers went on strike. Got a job at Disney in comedy development, working for a writer-producer. Then his development deal ended, and I got laid off. I got a job at CBS, and that was a transformative job because my dream was to work for a TV network, and I finally got there. Unfortunately, it was not all it was I expected it to be. We could talk more about that horror story in a few minutes. And then I got out of television, worked in the theme park business for about six years as a project manager. Um, and I talk about that in my TED Talk, one of the projects that I worked on in China. And then after getting laid off from that job, again, you can see a lot of the roller coaster thing, right? Ups and downs, layoffs, the firing. I hadn't been fired yet. Um, that comes later. Uh, but then I moved back to New York and I got a job with the American Management Association where I ran their mini MBA program. And that was my first 
foray into management and leadership and reading management leadership books. And that led to my career that I'm doing today as a management leadership consultant, trainer, and coach. So I'll leave it at that and um, I'll turn it back over to you. But that's my resume in a nutshell. I love it because I am so with you on how the the idea of what should happen in business is never what actually yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would like to just find out a little bit about your your teaching career. You you know you teach currently both at NYU and Columbia. So what do you like best about teaching, and and do you have any interesting stories there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I never in a million years ever thought I would be a teacher or a trainer or speak in public because in my NYU class, I have my students do an exercise during the introduction where they all have to speak. Um, and, I, and I say to them, you have all just spoken more than I spoke in all my years of high, junior high school, high school, college and graduate school because I never once got up in front of the room or raised my hand. If I was called on, I would speak but I would never voluntarily speak. So they're like amazed by that because they think, oh, I'm just a natural you know, extrovert and public speaker, but I'm anything but that. So I was working for a financial services company called LiquidNet, um, and I, was, I designed their leadership curriculum and their coaching program. And I started getting involved in other organizations like um, ATD, Association for Talent Development, and ICF, the International Coach Federation. And I met someone at ICF, Nancy Yankowitz, um, who I became friends with, a fellow coach, and she was teaching at NYU, and she thought that what I did and how I did it would make for a good course at NYU. So she introduced me to NYU, and they said, let's do it. So I teach with a, a guy named Jeff Schwartzman, who was my boss at LiquidNet at the time. Uh, he was a friend of mine at Dale Carnegie Training. Then he hired me to, be, to work with him, and then I got laid off from there during the financial crisis. Uh, in 2010, I got laid off. Um, and, but we continued to teach together. So um, again, I had never, I would never volunteer to teach, but because someone approached me and said, would you be interested in teaching? It was just kind of like that saying about uh, luck being when preparation and opportunity meet. So it's kind of like my, what I had been doing prepared me for this opportunity. And then I was lucky enough to be hired by NYU. And um, the way I got, ended up at Columbia, this is an interesting one of the stories is there's a guy named Adam Bryant, an author and New York Times columnist. He wrote a column called The Corner Office, where he would interview CEOs every week. And I used his column in my NYU class. And I thought he would find that interesting to know that. So I sent him an email. And he said, oh, that's really interesting. Why don't we meet for lunch? So we, I went over to the New York Times to meet him for lunch. And then he offered to guest speak in my class, which I was blown away by. So that's a perfect example. As an introvert, you think, oh, I'm bothering someone by reaching out to them. And it was the exact opposite. He was like, hey, sure, I'd be happy to come speak in your class. And then he got an offer to teach at Columbia. And even though he was an amazing public speaker, he had never taught a class before. So I helped him develop his course. And he taught for a year. But then one semester, he was not available to do it. And he said, oh, I know someone who could do it. And he recommended me to Columbia. And that's how I became a lecturer at Columbia. So again, you never know where things are going to lead. I love this so much because I know that there are a lot of people listening right now who are getting something out of the fact of, you know, you just have to be there. You just have to show up. You just have to ask. You, you, you know, it has everything to do with in what you said, you, you a lot of people don't want to bother or, or speak to someone who they think they perceive is, you know, so famous or big or whatever that they, they're they not going to have time for them or, or mm -hmm. want to be bothered. But I find that 
it's quite the opposite because everybody thinks that way. No mm-hmm. one's reaching out to them. And so yeah. and they want to give back because they probably had someone who helped them on their journey, right? Yeah. And that's what I've found a lot, which is fantastic. Now I want to ask about your book, but before I get there, you've mm-hmm. brought up this whole introvert thing a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So just a quick aside here, how are you liking the situation currently? Us extroverts not so fond of the isolation. I mean, is this this working for you? To be honest, it's not that much different than my previous life. So um, (laughs) uh, I'm actually from New York and my wife and I, um, uh, we're actually staying in Connecticut, in Fairfield, Connecticut, in the house that my wife grew up in. So we got out of the city just for safety. And um, so in that way, it's a little different. Um, But my wife and I always work side by side. You know, we both go to clients and we both have work outside the home, but I would say, What's interesting for me, I'm fine with about 80% working from home and 20% out there in the world. A lot of people like yourself, extroverts, are going crazy because you like the other, if not 100%, at least 90% out there in the world with other people. So with my schedule, my lifestyle, because I love, I think, I write. So it's not, it's difficult to be isolated and to be um, hunkering down and, and not be able to go to networking things. But what's interesting, I said to someone the other day, I've met more people on all these Zoom calls I've been doing than I ever would have met in 10 years of going out to events. Because I would go out to a networking event and I become go back to becoming that high school wallflower again. And I meet like one or two people if they approach me. I'm not the, hey, how you doing kind of guy. On Zoom, it levels the playing field. So I'm meeting all these people. I'm in breakout rooms. I'm connecting with them on LinkedIn. And then you'd set up a one-on-one. So I probably added, I'm not exaggerating, I probably added 500 new LinkedIn connections over the last like two months since this started. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying all of this, but I really no, want to get I'm not going to say I'm enjoying it. You don't know, okay. I miss my mother. I would give anything to give my mother a hug right now. I haven't been able to see her in a couple of months. So I'm not saying I'm enjoying a pandemic, but I'm, I'm surviving and functioning okay. Okay. Well, that's good. Now, during all of this, you have launched your new and first book, uh, Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. So tell us a little bit about the book. Sure. The title is Visual Leadership, and it's spelled as one word with a single L. And the reason that is, is um, there's a lot of, there's a million books out there on leadership, as we all know, and people tend to know what leadership is. Visual thinking is kind of a newer, hotter topic, and it kind of relates to design thinking and user experience, but it's all about how we see the world. And my mantra is, how do you get people to see what you're saying, right? Regardless of what we do, whether you're doing a radio show, a podcast, a TED talk, a meeting, um, in any business context, if you're a teacher, a trainer, a coach, it's all about how do you get an idea out of your head and into someone else's head, into their mind's eye, to use the term from Shakespeare, from Hamlet. Um, so when you mix, when you merge, almost picture a Venn diagram with interlocking circles with visual in one and, th- and leadership in the other, when you put them together, visual leadership is about leading through visual thinking. And visual thinking, in a nutshell, is about thinking in pictures. It's about using visualization. It's about everything from, if you picture what you did in the past, you're reflecting back, right? That, that, that you're using your visual mind. If you're thinking, all right, what do I have to do today? And how's my day gonna unfold? You're picturing it in your mind. Or if you have a vision of the future, we always talk in terms of leadership, you know, what's your leadership vision or what makes you a visionary leader? The word vision comes in. The quote they used by Jonathan Swift to open up 
um, seeing the invisible, right? That's all about visual thinking. So I have a few different methodologies for doing this that we could talk about, but in a nutshell, that's what this is about. And the book subtitle is In Leadership and in Life. So it's not just for managers, it really is for all of us. That's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I've heard you speak and I love what you speak on. And so I'm definitely very interested in this. I'm I'm a visionary. I'm that why person, right? And so I have to surround myself with how people so I can get stuff done. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> but, but that's that's me. So you're you're speaking my language for sure. And if it, you know, I, I do want to ask you about your TEDx talk last year, which is a similar title, which is the power of visual thinking, but you had a, a particular challenge with that. Would you mind sharing that with everyone? Yes, yes. When you first get offered a TEDx talk, it's exhilarating and it's exciting. And I, I applied five, you know, talk about, you know, fear to, you know, fear to the fire. So I applied, you know, it's one thing to present and teach, but there's something we, we magnify a TEDx talk, right? Because we yeah. put it this on this, create this pedestal and standing on that red carpet and everything else. So you, we build it up. And then when we don't get it, it's even more of a letdown because, you know, you, you know, when you go through the application process, if you put so much of yourself into it. And, and um, I applied for TEDx Tarrytown and I was one of 11 finalists and they went with 10 people. So, and they had to bump someone and I ended up being oh, the one bumped. No. So, um, so I, again, I didn't make the cut a few times. That time I came that close and it was literally like, can we squeeze one more in? They said, sorry, we just don't have the room and we have to cut someone and you're that someone. So, um, but I kept bouncing back. I kept applying and I got ex- accepted for TEDx Chelsea Park in New York City. So, um, the topic, the power of visual thinking. Oh, originally most TEDx talks are 18 minutes. Then they said it's probably gonna be 12. And then a week before, they said, oh, because of the number of people and we're going to have a musical act, it's only going to be eight. So all of a sudden, they went from 18 minutes to 12 minutes to eight minutes. And how do you give the talk of your life and say everything you want to say in just eight minutes? So I always say the hardest part of doing anything is not deciding what to put in, but deciding what to leave out, right? So I designed my TEDx talk and I rehearsed it and everything else. And I had, because it's visual, I had a my visual PowerPoint slides. I had it the timing down pat. I had the humor. I had the, the you know, the jokes timed to the humorous comments timed to the visuals. So I had everything set and we rehearsed it. And then the week before they said, can you send us like the top 10 slides that you have that we can incorporate into the video when we edit the video? And I said, can I send that to you afterwards? And they said, no, we need it. We'd like it now just so we have it. And I said, okay, but please don't mix them up. These are two, one has like 40 slides and the other has 10. And guess what happened? Like you could probably guess. Uh, yeah. I, I get up there on stage and I click the clicker and I'm almost like paralyzed, almost telling it I'm paralyzed. Um, the slide that I expected to come up first didn't because it was one of the, I, and I realized after the second click that this was the shorter deck with only 10 slides. So I had the timing down to, a, you know, to the exact second. And here I was not knowing, luckily the slides were in correct chronological order, but half my brain had to deliver the talk seamlessly and without giving anything away. And the other half was what slide is coming up next. So as I watch as I watch the video now, I could see I actually slow down my pace and I pause and hesitate because imagine giving a TEDx talk and not knowing what your next slide is going to be, and that's right. what happened to me. So when I got off the stage, I was furious and almost in tears. I mean, literally. So I got a great round of applause. My wife is the only one who knew because she had run it with me for so many times, and she was like, "What happened?" No one else knew, which was great. 
but I was like angry at the organizers in some ways because I asked them, can we run through it? Can we check beforehand? And they didn't have time. And they're like, you're just worrying and it'll be fine. But yeah. it wasn't fine. And, you know, I watched the video now and I'm able to enjoy it. But I still, you know, picture what could have been. Yeah, you know, I, I watched it. And of course, I would not have known if I didn't know about this story. But the emotions I can, you know, talk about visualizing, I can not only visualize it, but I can feel what you're feeling as someone who has done a TEDx and, and know, I know firsthand all that goes into that, the preparation yeah. and how you feel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that, that way to, way to come through it and do what you had to do. That's outstanding. Yeah. I, t I take that in a way as a triumph because like my preparation and the, you know, the poise that the fact that people didn't know was great because Mm -hmm. I was almost in a split second going to stop and say, wait, these aren't the right slides, but that would have thrown off the timing. I, it would have been awkward. It was also being live streamed up on Facebook. So yeah. for all those reasons, I just, and that's a great point. It's like sometimes something happens in our life and we have to decide, do we hit the pause button and try to stop and figure it out? Or do we just have to keep plowing through it full steam ahead and do the best we can and hope for the best? So um, that's why, I, I, you know, over preparation is really important practicing and also preparing for what if, because anything can happen. Our technology can fail. Um, I think we have to be prepared for all situations. Definitely. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't want to learn that skill in the situation that yeah. you had. Yeah. That's for sure. You know, I love to give our listeners something that they can take away. So do you have any advice about how others can be more successful by leveraging the power of visual thinking in either their work or their lives? Is there something that you can share with them that they might be able to use? Sure. In, in my book, I, talk, I break it down to four areas, and I do this in my, in my workshops and things that I do. So I talk about visual thinking in terms of category one is using visual imagery and drawing. So if you can do a, map, a napkin sketch, if you can get up at a whiteboard or a flip chart, if, so, if say if you're explaining something in words, can you pick up a pen and kind of sketch it out for someone? And um, I tell a story in my book and my TED talk about how I, when I was working on that project in China, there was a huge language disconnect because none of us spoke English, none, none of us spoke Chinese, none of them spoke English. So I actually picked up a pen and started drawing diagrams and different things and we connected and we were drawing back and forth. So I said it, it almost turned into a game of Pictionary and charades. It's like two <laughs> words sounds like screwdriver, right? So it's kind of like, how do you get, you know, I needed to get an idea out of my head into the other person's head. But even when there's not language differences, there's still perception, there's paradigms, there's cultural differences. So people don't always get what we're saying, but if we could use in the visual image, it really, you can look at it and go, okay, I see what you're saying, right? So the second category is using mental models or frameworks and diagrams or maps, right? Process diagrams, a company's organizational chart, right? That's a visual representation of who reports to who, right? So by having a mental model or a framework, we can visualize it. The third category is using metaphors and analogies. If you can say this is kind of like that and you use an analogy that someone can relate to and it resonates with them, um, that's a great way to get your ideas across. If you said, hey, you hit a home run on that presentation, if you know what a home run is in baseball, people get it. But if you're talking to someone of another culture or who doesn't know anything about baseball, it may not resonate with them. So you need to think about who your audience is, who you're communicating with, and use a metaphor analogy that's going to resonate with that person. And then the fourth category is using uh, storytelling and humor. And not humor as in jokes, but 
the humor in everyday life and stories. And I have tons of stories about horrible bosses and things like that. <laughs> when you tell a story, it, stories are relatable. It makes you vulnerable, makes you human, and, and they're memorable and they're emotional and they're impactful. So it could be a success story, like this is how I succeeded, but it could also be a cautionary tale like my TEDx, which was don't let this happen to you. And here's something you could do to kind of minimize the odds of that happening. So. Um, yeah. In terms of the visuals, I talk about attention, comprehension, and retention. When you use any of those techniques, when you can use pictures in addition to your words, um, it increases people's focus and their attention because they're looking at something. They can visualize it in their mind's eye. Even if you're just speaking, if you paint a picture with words, it's almost as if they're watching a movie. Mm -hmm. Comprehension, it helps them to understand, and retention, it helps them to remember. You know, I love this, Todd. This is really helpful. And I especially like that you gave us choices because as you were starting and using the Pictionary yeah. analogy, I'm literally always picked last for the Pictionary game mm. because I'm just so bad at it. But then when you got to three and four, now you're in my wheelhouse. I can tell a story. I can, I can do metaphors and analogies. So I'm really glad that you gave people options because different yeah. personality types are going to respond to different options for that. So that's, that's exactly. fantastic. Yeah, that's exactly right. When people say, oh, I'm not a visual thinker, we're all visual thinkers because that's just the way our brains are wired. There's a principle called the picture superiority effect, which is science has proven that when you have a picture and you have just text, People's eyes are drawn to the picture. You remember the picture. You understand the picture. And there's also another theory called dual coding theory, where you're using both the right, right, right brain and left brain in combination. And, and you hit it on the head. There's no one-size-fits-all solution for anything in life, right? We all have the things that we like and we prefer. So when you give people options and different ways of doing it, they could, you could say, I can't draw, but I could tell a story, or I'm not, not great at storytelling, but I'm happy to pick up a pen and sketch it out for you. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? There was no PowerPoint. He basically right. gave one of the greatest speeches in history by painting a picture of an idealized future state that's different from and better than the current reality and got people unified around that message. So that's like the classic example of motivating people through using the art of visual thinking and visual storytelling without anything that we're actually seeing with our eyes. Wow. It's it's so powerful when you when you're clearly laying it out like this for people. It is really very powerful. And, you know, I'm sure that there are people who are listening right now who will want to grab a copy of your book or reach out to you, connect with you somehow. Can you take a moment and share with people the best way for them to reach you? Sure. The absolute best way to reach me is on LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn. I spend hours a day on LinkedIn. So just link in with me. It's Todd Churches, C-H-E-R-C-H-E-S, like as if it's a church and more of them, but with an E. Um, so just link in with me. Send me a note. Uh, and my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble at independent bookstores. And again, it's visual leadership with a single L in the middle. And um, and yeah, you can also you know, send me an email as well, todd.churches at my company, bigbluegumball.com. But the best way is definitely through LinkedIn. That way we can connect. I can see who you are. And I'm happy to connect with anyone and answer any of your questions. That's fantastic, Todd. And anyone listening, don't worry. I will put these links for you in the show notes so you can just click and go connect with Todd. So unbelievably, we are coming to the end of our show. Do you have any final parting words of wisdom for our listeners today? 
Well, one, that was the fastest half hour of my life, Heather. So thanks for uh, <laughs> making it fly by. This was, I'm sure we could have talked for hours more. Yes. Um, but also one of the things that you said that resonated with me, there's no one right way to do anything. There's no one tool, one, no one you know, system or process or methodology. So find a way that works for you. But we're all already visual thinkers. So whether it's storytelling, or you can say, you know, I want to start drawing more, or I want to improve my PowerPoint slides. That's something we could all use help with, right? There's, we all have that death by PowerPoint thing. Thing where we put up text and so if you can say I'm gonna how can I communicate more visually so that people can see what I'm saying you're gonna be so much more effective and to be honest what makes the visual thing so appealing it's actually fun right it's fun to tell a visual story and like if you say oh I'm not a good storyteller but you wouldn't believe what happened to me today right you just told someone an amazing story right that resonated with them so um, we're all visual thinkers whether we know it or not and just find the way to visually think and visually communicate in a way that suits you and I think you'll one have more fun but you'll also get other people to see what you're saying more effectively than ever before I love it Todd this has been an absolute pleasure I'm so excited for you for your new book that's published by Post Hill Press Simon and Schuster and one more time for everyone it's called visual leadership with just one L in the middle mm -hmm. leveraging the power of visual thinking in leadership and in life Todd churches thank you Thank you so much. Thanks, Heather. This was great. I appreciate it so much. You take care. Bye-bye.